Welcome back to Season 2 of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic Science Podcast, where we look forward to the new synthesis in the new millennium between faith, philosophy, and science. All right, it's time to get this show on the road. This is Episode 85 of That's So Second Millennium, and I am Paul Geesting, your inveterate co-host, lacking my other co-host because uh, the infamous Bill Schmidt is uh, out learning how to self-publish. A daunting task. Daunting task. Please pray for him. All right. Uh, today, I decided we're going to call this episode Albert the Great, the Medieval Synthesis, and a Faith that Works. We'll see if I get to all of those elements. Um, yeah. So, uh, it's been a long, been a long weekend. It's going to get very cold tomorrow here in Indiana. Uh, fortunately, it was very pleasant today. It was one of those uh, episodes where I started out with this idea, so I finished that huge, enormous uh, proposal for the Air Force Research Lab on the 1st of November. And this past week, I've been sort of recovering, only not really because I have to assign myself little projects, one of which was I was finally going to modify this old Jeep Wrangler so that uh, it gets something much more close to straight battery voltage to the headlights. Don't worry too much about that. Um, just letting you know that I'm an engineer as well as a scientist, if uh, only avocationally. But anyway, after a whole bunch of wire and connectors and relays, and uh, actually kind of a lot of fun, to be perfectly honest with you, um, to put it all back together again, I looked at the engine bay and said, you know what, I need to drop this radiator, and I need to get rid of this cooler for the air conditioning, because, of course, the ancient air conditioning, because it was 87, it was a Wrangler Laredo. Column shift automatic. Either you're a Jeep person and you understand why that's wrong, or you're not a Jeep person and you don't get why I'm, I'm incensed about this. Jeeps are just too burly and, nah, never mind. Never mind. If, again, if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. Should not, should not in an 80s Jeep have a column shift automatic. Really shouldn't have an automatic at all. But you surely should not have a column shift automatic. And you sure, certainly shouldn't have had an air conditioner. That's what you take the top off for. That's why you have a Jeep, right? Anyway, so the air conditioning has not functioned since I owned it in 2008. I doubt it has functioned this century. The question is, at what point in the 90s? Was Kurt Cobain still alive when this air conditioning uh, failed? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm really not sure. In any case, I've taken the, in, uh, the interior part out. And now I've taken... I dropped the radiator so that I could get the cooler for the air conditioning. And then, of course, you have to, it's a heat exchanger, right? It takes heat from inside the cab and exchanges it to the engine bay. So I took that uh, heat exchanger out from in front of the radiator so I had enough room to put the wiring into a loom so that it's all sort of gathered up rather than just, you know, six or eight wires all sort of sprayed around in front of the uh, radiator. It's sort of not a good idea. Anyway, so I did all of that. And, uh, of course, I dropped the radiator and in dropping the radiator, I found out that my cheap 11-year-old radiator that I bought almost immediately after I bought the vehicle, um, the solder has come off. So the radiator is not actually supported on one side. Awesome. So I've spent a lot of time working on this Jeep over the last three days. A lot of time. And of course, it's not quite over yet. And I need to get it done because right now it has just water and one little dorky bottle of uh, sodium citrate conditioner in it to uh, clear the rust out of the engine block and that needs to get replaced by actual coolant before it drops to 15 degrees tomorrow night so i'm going to have to do it 
tomorrow morning <clears throat> before uh, before it gets below freezing. Anyway, all right. All that said, that's why we're busy, and that's why this is a uh, this is an emergency episode. Don't want to break the chain. Just like uh, Jerry Seinfeld, don't want to break the chain. Uh, it's been it's been a long long streak, and there are some things to talk about. So let's get to the actual. Having given you that uh, little uh, personal vignette, didn't necessarily mean to spend four minutes on that, but uh, hopefully it amused somebody. Uh, so Robert Barron, Bishop Barron, uh, out in California, and Brandon Vocht with the the Empire, the uh, We're on Fire. I I am a I am a subscriber. I have uh, picked up my subscription to that sometime over the summer, and uh, have been enjoying those videos. Bishop Barron has an interesting s- series of videos on. The theology of Hans Urs von Balthasar. That's that's pretty cool. I've learned a lot from that. I'm starting to do his Newman ones, and of course the Newman ones are ongoing, so he's dripping them out once a week, shaking my tiny fist at the television screen. I want to know what comes next. But anyway, it is good. It's good stuff. Anyway, so he has a podcast, of course, which has a few more listeners than this podcast. That's okay. And uh, so he and Brandon Vock. Brandon Vock is, of course, the one who actually runs it because Bishop Barron is busy being a bishop in Los Angeles, which uh, is a full-time job in seven-eighths. Uh, sounds like. Especially considering he has to jet back and forth to Rome all the freaking time. I would hate that. I mean, Rome is a nice place and all, but I would hate flying from California to Rome as often as he flies from California to Rome. It sounds actually kind of brutal. Anyway, um... So they, they've spent a couple weeks. Apparently, uh, Joe Rogan broke the internet by interviewing Richard Dawkins and, uh, just generally, uh, exchanging, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's what people do when they agree with each other, right? We just sort of sit, sit around and congratulate each other. So they're both athe- atheists. They're sitting there congratulating each other on being atheists. And so, uh, Bishop, so Brandon Vogt pulls these excerpts. And throws it to Bishop Barron. And actually, of course, as is often the case, because, you know, first of all, Brandon Vogt is not a dumb guy himself. And secondly, he's the one who chose the excerpts. Um, he has, he has some interesting points to add as well, but they both sort of rebut some of these points. So the one, of course, that sticks in my craw is that apparently Richard Dawkins thinks he's this brilliant intellectual by coming up with a something he calls the sort of one more God argument. It's not even an argument. It makes no sense. It's, it's pretty much asinine. It's complete begging the question. Well, I just believe in one less God than you do. You don't believe in Thor. I don't believe in Thor. You don't believe in Athena. I don't believe in Athena, but I also don't believe in your silly God. You just believe in, you know, one more God than I do. I just believe in one less God than you. you you're atheist about all these. I think, Oh, heavens. <laughs> <laughs> the whole point, people, is that there was a reason. <laughs> there was a reason in the year 50 or 150 or 250 or 350 of the common era. Well, let's get, let's stick with the first three. There were reasons why people, despite the fact that paganism was the official religion of the Roman Empire and various other polities, there were reasons why people decided to go and do this crazy illegal thing and become Christian and rip up a lot of their social fabric. And there were reasons. I mean, actually read the New Testament and see what it has to say for itself. I mean, for that matter, read the Old Testament, see what it has to say for itself. I mean, the whole point, you're, you're completely assuming what ne- remains to be proved. So there is this old saying from, uh, I forget which awful 
French Enlightenment personage said this, whether it was Diderot or, or who, but, you know, supposedly this argument, well, I should never believe in supernatural things because I know what the laws of nature are, and there's no one whose testimony could possibly be good enough to counteract my knowledge of what the, well, I mean, of course, that's the thing. To counteract the laws of nature. No. To counteract my idea of what the laws of nature are. And that, and the awful thing about that argument. So, of course, in the 18th century, people were very, very impressed. This whole, you know, this Newton guy, he had a good thing going. He really did. Isaac Newton had, had a lot of good things going. I mean, he gave us, he gave us so many. I mean, he put together and gave us the synthesis. I mean, in this case, a synthesis of, of what Science could be like, you know, mathemata with, with enough mathematics added to it, algebra and geometry brought together, applied to physics in just, I mean, the world is, will never be the same. The world can never, ever be the same. But it was possible to overstate what he did. And people in the ensuing centuries, in the 18th and 19th centuries, mad overstated what Newton contributed. Um, he wasn't right about everything any more than Aristotle had been right about everything for all that, you know, plenty of people in the uh, 13th and 14th century thought that Aristotle had been right about everything. Um, not true in either case. So Diderot think, oh, well, I, I know the laws. No, you don't. <laughs> no one in 1750 knew the laws of nature. We don't know the laws of nature. We know more of them. And as it turns out, Newton uh, just didn't happen to see some really important things. Um, the world is not a completely... Um, that's the word I'm groping for. It's not completely deterministic. I mean, we've had that we've had that discussion many times, and uh, you know, you definitely go back and look up all of the materials from the Society of Catholic Scientists just as a starting point uh, from last year. Go go I mean, if you can possibly find a copy of. Uh, Gosh, I recommended it. Arthur Compton. Arthur Compton. Yeah. Yeah. That book is, that, that book is back in the, uh, back in the archives. But in any case, you know, the world, we don't live in a term deterministic world. That's the, that's the absolutely, unless you believe in, unless you believe in the many worlds hypothesis, in which case it is deterministic. But then again, which branch we take to be the actual branch that's actually what we see since the world seems to be collapsed in on one branch and is not all of the possibilities all at once i can't i can't i can't imagine why that appeals to people i really can't i mean it's an interesting mental exercise i mean if it's a mental exercise and you're going to follow it and see where it goes that's brilliant keep doing that people should keep doing that it's possible that if we follow it far enough we'll come back we'll circle back around to something that might actually work so that should be done but at this stage of the game to say, oh, that's the answer. It's not the answer. <laughs> it's not the answer. Anyway, to come back to Dawkins, though, I mean, people had reasons. And the New Testament's own testimony for itself is Jesus came, and yes, he spoke with authority. In fact, he spoke with authority was backed up by the fact that people were different after they encountered this Jesus of Nazareth. People who couldn't walk could walk. People who couldn't see could see. People who couldn't hear, you get the idea. Dead people, you get the idea. That's the whole point. I mean, that was that was the testimony. That was why he had a group of followers to witness the fact that he was crucified and then rose from the dead. And then, if you read, for example, the end of the Gospel of Mark, where it's put most plainly, perhaps, this is going to keep happening. Good things are going to keep happening. 
And this is, you know, I'm told, and this is, you know, again, I'm groping for, I, I think this may be in Newman, the grammar of ascent, but the whole idea is that, you know, faith makes sense for a variety of reasons. It makes sense because it makes sense. The Christian faith proposes a single unitary God who happens to be the same God seems, seems awfully familiar to a Platonist or to an Aristotelian. Just, just seems a little too familiar and to match just a little too well. I mean, to my under, you know, so we talk about, you know, riddle me this. Follow me here. See, by all means, tell me where I've gotten off track here. But we talk about Indo-European languages. Language and culture go together. So at one point, there was an Indo-European culture. Someone, someone in the Caucasus, Central Asia, somewhere, some group of people had a common set of, you know, they had a common set of beliefs. They had a common set of proto-philosophies. Some of them went west and some of them went south. So to an extent, India, Indian culture, Hinduism is kind and Hindu philosophy is kind of like watching what would have happened to European culture if they had never encountered these funny Semitic people with their funny story about this uh, guy who was crucified and then came back to life. And it's interesting to, to think about, you know, all of the, the different Hindu teachings about, and of course I'm not going to pass myself off as an expert. I've taken a few classes, um, both in person at Washu and online uh, in the years following. Um, I've heard a few things. I suspect and wonder and muse on a few things that they have, you know, I mean, and again, it's, you know, it runs the gamut, right? You know, the, the various Hindu philosophies and, you know, what the, what the essence of reality is that there is one reality, you know, whether it's a pantheistic idea or some other unitary idea. Um, but it's funny how it, you know, matches a lot of what the Greeks were philosophizing about. I mean, certainly if you read the end of the Plato's Republic, like, oh, yeah, yeah, Hindus and reincarnation, and yeah, maybe these people didn't start from all that different a spot. Um, so that was, so that's, that's one thing. So it's intellectually honest, and in fact, you know, it's sort of a commonplace that the Greco-Roman world was starting to have difficulties with paganism. I mean, the, you know, the people like Cicero were writing things like, you know, the nature of the gods and speculating, like, ah, I don't know that, you know, all of these, you know, we can really believe all of these stories that we told ourselves for centuries. Um, I'm not sure they actually make sense or actually could have happened. And does it make a difference? And of course, people were groping for other things, the mystery cults, Mithraism, so on. Um, it was a void, and it's unsurprising if God was going to plan to put this into the world. He would have created a void for it to step into. He would have created it at a time when people were willing to receive it. None of this is a problem. And then there's the whole question of what does it do in individual human lives? Does it allow us, like Zacchaeus, to come down from our tree and change our lives in a way that we maybe desperately wanted to, but never found the strength? <laughs> 12-step programs. I mean, go look at the 12 steps and tell me those aren't Catholic. I mean, confess your sins. Make amends. Ask for God's grace at every step of the path and take time to pray every day. 
and continue to go and confess your sins and make restitution. Oh, I mean, yeah, I've never heard any of those doctrines before. I mean, that came, that just came out of left field. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that's the whole, I mean, that's the whole point of religion is that, you know, that's the whole point of the Christian religion is that it works on multiple levels. It works on the level of philosophy. It works on the level of, you know, giving meaning and actually allowing my life to change. And then it also works on the level of the miraculous. If miracles all of a sudden dried up, if we could suddenly prove that, if we could actually prove, not just assume away, which is what the new atheists and atheists for centuries have done, because there are some that can be disproven, well, they must all be false. Because, of course, that's only stuff for credulous people. <sighs> go, I mean, <laughs> go read up on the Shroud of Turin, go read up on, you know, our Lady of Fatima or Our Lady of Lords, Eucharistic miracles, you know, go ahead. I mean, tell me what you find. Let's have that conversation. Can, can you really dismiss all of these? Or is that, that just that you want to dismiss all of these? Yeah. Anyway. So I promised to talk about Albert the Great. So I better do that before I wrap up here because it is getting to be close to 930 and gosh, I need to go to bed early. Um, Albert the Great. So he comes at that period. And of course, so the, the Middle Ages, and of course there was, there was a, a vast societal collapse. And this, I mentioned in the liner notes, this Roman science book, like William Stahl. It's one of the most, it was intensely, intensely readable, despite being hilariously depressing. Because basically, Stahl's point is more or less that the Greeks did, you know, the, the ancient Greeks, the classical Greeks did amazing things. So there were, there was the Homer, you know, Homer to Sophocles say, you know, the great poetry and literature. And then there were the centuries of amazing, and he, he scruples not to call it Greek science. Not everyone chooses to call it that. And he's definitely including mathematics there. But astronomy, physical geography, which I didn't, you know, think about how much that was, you know, part of the ancient world. And of course it really was. They speculated all the time about torrid zones and arctic zones. They were right about one and not so right about the other. You can live at the equator. It is, it is though darn hard to live at the North Pole, let alone the South Pole. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's fascinating. And so, and it was, and it was odd. It was unique. And, you know, to the degree that the Chinese and the Indians, you know, the India Indians did their own science and then it sort of just fell flat and didn't go anywhere. Well, the same thing more or less happened in the Mediterranean because the Romans weren't. I mean, this is the whole thesis of the book. It's called Roman science. The Romans weren't having any. <laughs> the Romans weren't going to do this right. <laughs> and he really, you know, for all that I, I don't, I don't know. That's, and that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, the, he wrote the book, and I cannot tell whether he's sympathetic to the Christian point of view or not. For all these, you know, brought up in Western culture, so he's been, you know, every every idea that we have, every idea that Richard Dawkins has, has been put through the funnel of over a millennium of Christianity. Sorry, just just letting you know, that's an obvious historical point. Anyway, um, but you know, so he he blames the decline of the Dark Ages. Not on Christianity being dark and anti-intellectual, but on Romans <laughs> being anti-intellectual. And he makes sort of a good point. Um, fascinating. Really fascinating book. 
Um, so that, you know, so there was, so it was Greek science and it, it decayed, you know, even in the Greek speaking East, it decayed and it really decayed and it really never came to fruition in the West. Um, and then finally in the, in the high middle ages, you know, they finally imported Aristotle and a lot of the other, you know, Ptolemy and other, other great books and writings from that, that great brief flowering of Greek science. And they really started to, you know, force themselves to do the work of seeing whether it could all fit with Catholic Christianity. I mean, that's what the great, you know, that's, that's the, that's the tradition that Albert the Great, you know, is of course one of the top handful. You know, always think of Thomas Aquinas and that's not always a good thing because, you know, it, it could never have been one person's work. Although, you know, Lord knows Thomas Aquinas was a brilliant man. Um, and of course we associate Albert the Great more with physical science because Albert the Great was more engaged with that side of the intellectual, uh, inquiry than Thomas was. Thomas was more of a philosopher, a philosopher and a theologian. Um, whereas Albert the Great let himself look at physical science. And of course, Albert the Great was not alone. There was Robert Brostest, who I only remember because his name is so hilarious, Robert the Fathead. Um, and I mean, there were, there are many, many others, including Francis Bacon, as I recall. Not Francis Bacon. Roger Bacon! Roger Bacon. Not Francis Bacon. Don't get them confused. Different centuries. Shame on me. Um, that's just how it is. And that's, that's also, it is 930. So I'm going to go ahead and, uh, clean this up and cut it for hopefully your listening pleasure. And, uh, appreciate your, uh, your sticking with us. And this is the Gold Mass Week. More than likely, where if there's a gold mass near where you are, it is probably going on this week. And if nothing else, make it to a mass on Friday for Albert the Great. And pray for this crazy modern world full of people who imagine that religion is just a matter of personal choice, as if it never had any objective reason to be believed in in the first place. That's what it's decayed into. That's not what it was to start with. And that's not what it has to stay. With that... This is Paul signing off. If you enjoyed this episode, or it made you think, please subscribe to That So Second Millennium via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, or your podcast service of choice.